You're listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending, and how to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk. And now, enjoy Factual America with our host, Matthew Sherwood. Welcome to Factual America, a podcast that explores the themes that make America unique through the lens of documentary filmmaking. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every two weeks it is my pleasure to interview documentary filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Uh, we're coming to you from Spiritland Studios, our home away from home here in King's Cross, uh, London, England. And today's topic is the 2020 U.S. presidential election, special religion edition. So uh, our guest is Dr. Emma Long, a senior lecturer in American studies at the University of East Anglia. Welcome to the show, Emma. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, so I gather your research focus is uh, Constitution and the Supreme Court, interaction of religion and politics, separation of church and state, uh, First Amendment issues, and you're a founding member of Scholars of Religion and American Life Research Network. Do I have all that right? You do indeed, yes. Okay, very good. Well, it's a it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, I think we've got a great show lined up today. Uh, a, a topic we haven't really discussed too much uh, here on uh, the Factual America podcast, which is religion in America, even though I think for many non-Americans, people outside the U.S., it's one of the defining elements, at least has been historically. People see America as this very... The, the odd man out, if you will, in terms of uh, Western democracies and countries of being very religious. The religiosity seems to be uh, a characteristic. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's one of the things that seems to puzzle a lot of people from outside the United States because of this idea that the U.S. apparently has a separation of church and state. And yes, every time you look at American politics or yeah. political life, religion is there, whether it's candidates talking about their religion mm-hmm. or religion playing a role in debates about policy issues. Um, and I'm not surprised you didn't talk about it, especially in the UK, because, of course, as, as the people in the in the UK tend to, to say, you don't talk about religion and politics in polite company. Yeah. So. Or, and even politicians have said, we don't do God, uh, you know, yes, famously, yeah, yep. in this, in this uh, country. Particularly in this country, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, as you know, the format of the show is that our guests uh, choose a documentary to help serve as a backdrop uh, and you chose Most Hated Family in America. Uh, the Louis Theroux uh, doc well, uh, for TV, made for the BBC, he uh, filmed, wrote, and presented. It's, uh, it's uh, part of a trilogy, actually. looks at the Phelps family uh, and the Westboro Baptist Church. It's, uh, I would say, in terms of uh, TV docs, it's almost reached iconic status, I would think. It's uh, something that even my children at school see in their uh, RE classes. That's interesting. Yeah, so, uh, um, you know, what... Why did you choose this film? <laughs> um, Besides I, the fact that we made you choose the film. <laughs> there's something very interesting about the, the documentary, but about the Westboro Baptist Church um, in general and the, the three films that, yeah. that are, um, really kind of cover the, the recent history, should we say, of the, the Westboro mm. Baptist Church. I'm less interested in the church 
itself or in fact the the people who who make it up and in some ways they don't need any more publicity from me mm. talking about about them they're very good at, at making their own publicity but i am interested in in sort of the the documentary but also what the the church does as symptomatic of something broader in mm. american politics um which is i think that it, it symbolizes for many people outside the us of sort of the, the worst kind of mm. connection between religion and politics and i think it it's become a bit of a, a lens for the way in which mm. people think about religion and politics in the in the us which is while it's it's not inaccurate, is not the whole story. There's a, a bigger yeah. picture because these these people are the at the very extreme. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, there's there's no question that yeah. they are not necessarily representative of yeah. even kind of what you might think of as being mainstream conservative religion yeah. before you even get to mainstream yeah. mainline religion in the United States. So yeah, they're they're very much um, an extreme, but. Uh, the tendency of, of particularly documentaries about religion and American life to focus on the extremities means that it becomes the lens through which a lot of people come to understand what that relationship is. Well, it does remind me, I, I, I lived in Prague in the Czech Republic uh, years ago, and I uh, remember a young woman I was working with said, uh, you know, your, your country is one of extremes, and you, you know every issue you can look at, it's, it's about the extremes. And I think that's, it is and it isn't. I think what gets dominates the airwaves is the extremes yeah Yeah. and uh well maybe i mean before we go a little even further into that discussion uh, what what would you say the most hated family in america is about (laughs) um it's about the family the phelps family who constitute ultimately the majority of the the westboro baptist church and my sense is that louis theroux wanted as he does in many of his documentaries to look beyond the headlines and beyond the sort of the political activity that they were involved in, for which they are very well known and obviously ultimately uh, were involved in a US Supreme Court case about that which brought them to to public prominence. He seems to be much more interested in understanding the family behind that, their kind of interactions with each other, um, sort of how the extreme views that they have shape the way that they think about the rest of the world and also their relationships with the wider world and with mm. e- with each other. So it's very easy, I think, to to dismiss people of extreme views when you just look at the, the views. It's easy to say, well, you're just a, an extremist. I don't have to engage with you. But the humanizing of the people who express that view um, forces you to engage with them as mm. people and I think to under, try and understand if not to either condone or accept the views that they're they're expressing and i think that's one of the strengths of the the documentary yeah i think that's a very good point i think that's a very good point to actually look at our first clip because i think uh uh, it's about halfway in in terms in terms of this uh uh, of the the doc and it it is where i mean we've been seeing glimpses of it but i think it's where uh louis through really focuses on the humanity uh especially as it's seen in the in the children that okay. are part of this. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, let's watch that clip now. It shakes it up a bit when there's more than one. <laughs> and so my days at the church wore on. As the time passed, I could feel myself being absorbed into the family. As hateful as they could be at the pickets, Among themselves, the church members had made a life that in many ways was quite appealing, almost as though their bond with each other had been strengthened by the hostility of the outside world. (laughs) 
With the girls, I began to see a more human side to their personalities. <laughs> Just like, that's my England. friend! <laughs> what did you say? I said, are you kidding me? Who is gonna marry us? <laughs> and it was easy to become desensitized to their message and how provocative it really is. And that we all see they covered their license plate. So I don't know what they were up to. Uh-oh, did they hit somebody? Is he okay? Is he okay? I'm sorry, hon. Oh, anytime they come with that. Well, and they had the license plate down. You all right, honey? Hey, bud. You got it all over. You're hey, sure bud. I'm sorry, hon. I knew they were had to have done something. I am so sorry. You want to go over here and talk to your daddy? I'm sorry. Hey, hey, you want your sign? Hey, let me wipe that off of you real quick, okay? I'm sorry. Megan, can you? Let's just... They're such cowards. Who would hit a child? Who would do that? It looks like here, Tim. I know, I'm see looking that? at the, the eyes. Did you see that color? That's what was in that cup. So it obviously got around on him. All right. Okay. Seeing seven-year-old Elisha get hit it? by a drink was a reminder that among the victims of the Phelps were their own children. So I think that very well illustrates what you were just saying. I mean, I have to admit, I, I sort of avoided the doc for many years. I had not seen it until very, very recently because I'm sort of sensitive to these issues you've already mentioned about how uh, the rest of the world sees the United States, certainly religiosity and people of faith. Even uh, I wouldn't de describe myself as a evangelical or conservative Christian, but I, I think um, I do think they sometimes get painted as a Let's face it. A lot of you'll you'll you look this up. You'll see films that are all about snake handlers and and these very extreme examples of of religion. Uh, and I think this actually points out of that we were discussing before the 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 show is that uh, there's sort of a a lack of good films about this this subject. Yeah, they tend to be, and of course, the nature of. I think filmmaking is that you you want characters, you yeah. want a story, and um, the extreme instances do tend to to give you that uh just to to think of a, another one that came out uh, recently hail satan which is about mm. the satanic church of, of america which actually is far less extreme than the name might sound yeah. um but again is focusing on a, a group that has a, a very particular message mm. but which sort of pushes public opinion in very different extreme uh, extreme ways and yeah there is a, a lack of of I think good documentaries on kind of mainstream Protestantism or mainstream Catholicism in mm. America and they are just as important and just as influential in shaping American politics but they get a lot fewer headlines yeah and I think probably a phrase that might get uh, mentioned a few times in this as we discuss is the uh, the culture wars and I think these these films get caught up in that I think uh, uh, 
And then invariably, I think sometimes people have agendas that they're trying to push with the, with these films. Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, and my sense is quite often, unless you are part of the sort of evangelical fundamentalist circuit where there are documentaries that are, are made specifically for those mm-hmm. audiences, yeah. which don't then tend to make it out into a mainstream audience unless you, you look for them. Um, a lot of the, the mainstream programs are made... Dare I say, from a slightly more liberal perspective, mm. which um, can portray these groups in in a slightly negative light, which then feeds into their reaction against mainstream society and the idea that they're not being taken seriously. So it all becomes a, a cycle. Yeah. Um, I think we're gonna we're gonna go back to the uh, the Phelps family and Westboro Baptist Church in a in a clip later in the show. But okay. let's um, let's take adva- uh, take advantage of you being here. You're a, you're an expert. You're on religion and uh, politics okay. and the history. Um, so I was born and raised in the United States. Um, you know, we're taught founding fathers were God fearing men who uh, pursued an ideal and they instituted a strict separation of church and state because they didn't want a state religion or a tyranny of beliefs imposed on the, on citizens. And what would you say the reality is over the last 240 years or so? Uh, how long have we got for two? Well, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, so years. so no, I don't. Yeah, so don't do. We, we're not. Don't don't worry. Don't tune off. Don't don't, don't uh, hit the the pause button. We're not going to go. Uh, but just to sort of quickly, this kind of because it is such a. Um, um, it is this defining element of the U.S. It, it is. And I think that the debate about what the founders meant has become mm. inherently politicized in the battles over the, the culture wars and the, the battles over mm. um, uh, public policy that, that has religious um, elements and divides religious groups. And it's very difficult to talk about what the founders intended without getting caught up in those those battles. So one side will say they, you know, they established a separation of church and state. They were... Um, and that they didn't want this sort of tyranny of religion and that there should be a, a secular public square, right? Public debate should be conducted in secular terms because by its very nature, religious belief differs between different groups and it makes it harder to find compromise, which then makes political activism more more difficult. But then there's the other side of that, which is the founding fathers were God-fearing men. They, you know, America is a Christian nation with a Christian heritage and that excluding religion is discrimination. Uh, against uh, people of, of faith and I'm a historian it's never really black and white depends on where you look and what sources you look at so there's some something in between there uh, the constitution doesn't establish a separation of church and state even though that's the shorthand that we mm-hmm. we use the first amendment uh, says congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion it's been interpreted as the separation of church and state but laws respecting an establishment of religion are not quite the same thing yes it meant that they didn't want an established church along the british mold so there's an institutional separation between them but that has never separated religion and politics ever in the united states so anything that that sees the founders and as establishing that separation is you know is, is just sort of inaccurate, effectively. I mean, you only have to look, look at the biggest debate of the 19th century over slavery. There are religious groups on both sides in the, the debate over slavery before the American Civil War. In fact, it divides American churches into northern and southern branches over their positions on abolitionism and the, the continuation of slavery. So, and that, that's just a, to pick one mm. probably really well-known example so when we talk about separation we have to be careful i think about 
what we mean and, and how that then plays out. Well, just even from a, my own personal memories, uh, I remember the big issue when I was in school was all about prayer, prayer. in school. And, uh, you know, I can think from one year to the next, we never knew if we were going to, because I went to public schools, uh, state schools, and you never knew whether we were going to have a prayer or not, you know, from one year to the next, depending on what the latest, uh, you know, uh, a decision was, if it had gone to the Supreme Court, uh, people used to say, well, as long as there were exams, there will be prayers in schools. Yep. But, uh, you know, I think it is just uh, sort of emblematic that we don't need to go down a whole show on prayer in school, but I think it, it's we just... We could. Like, I could it, easily... You, you could easily while away the day with, a, with that discussion, and I can regale you stories of... Uh, invocations before Texas high school football games and things yep. like that and yep. uh, how how people different people reacted mm -hmm. but uh, I think what this gets us maybe you know and this that was a very quick uh, tour of American history up until sort of the 1970s or so um, what is I mean obviously there has been this phenomenon whether it's a fourth great awakening or or not and you can mention maybe briefly what it what these great awakenings are in the U.S. history, but uh, there's obviously been this rise of the Christian right and or Christianity with muscles since the 70s, basically. Yeah, um, and I think when we think about religion and politics in the U.S. at the moment, rightly or, or wrongly, and probably at least more to a wrong, wrongly, we think about the link between conservative religious groups, conservative Protestants, evangelicals and, and fundamentalists, and also increasingly conservative Catholics and some Orthodox Jews as well. And they're increasing links with the policies of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. So this kind of conservative religion, conservative politics link. And that really emerges, there, there are tendrils of, of that throughout history, certainly in the post-World War II period, but it really emerges clearly on the, the public into the public consciousness, I guess. Actually, in 1976, with Jimmy Carter's um, presidential campaign. Now, interestingly, Carter, of course, was a Democrat. He was a, a liberal, uh, but he was the first president of, I guess, of the modern era to be really open about his faith. He, he spoke about himself as being a born-again Christian and evangelicals saw this as one of their own um, on the, the national public stage and then very quickly he came to disappoint them, um, particularly on uh, his pro-choice policies to do with reproductive rights, but also in a, a range of, of other mm. areas. Um, and then you get Ronald Reagan um, running for president in, in 1980 and it's not just him and his comfort with speaking about his um, speaking about his his faith in ways that really we hadn't seen that much from from politicians, uh, but that the conservative and Republican sort of party apparatus around him really made efforts to make connections with um, conservative Christians to sort of bring them into the Republican fold. And so you begin to see these connections linking up between policies and, and um, sort of yeah. religious faith i guess it's almost it was almost personality driven i mean it's always this sort of chicken and egg argument but you mm -hmm. had people like jerry falwell pat yeah. robertson you had the moral majority who mm -hmm. really came to the fore at this time yep. who whether i don't know which came first but they certainly got put in touch with the republican party and the establishment and that sort of that element kind of took over the party over from about the reagan era onwards um and but what is it? I mean, we've we were discussing previously as well, and this is something again will come up quite a bit. Why, why the 
Democrats struggle so much with this because they they are kind of being they are the party of no faith these days, and the Republicans are kind of seen as the party of faith. Which is ironic. Um, I mean, just to to think of um, recent examples. Listen to Bill Clinton's speeches. If you take almost any speech that Bill Clinton made, and he was very comfortable with speaking about his his faith. His speeches were liberal um, were liberally sprinkled with um, quotations from scripture um, in ways that made it clear that this was familiarity. This wasn't speech writers putting them them all in. Uh, But there is this sense, certainly since Reagan, um, partly, I think, driven by these connections between religious and secular conservatives, um, that has very successfully portrayed the Republican Party as the party of faith and the Democrats um, as the the secular party. It, Mm -hmm. it, It plays into debates about the the culture wars as well but it's been a relatively rare democratic politician who has been able to break that clinton was one barack obama was actually a, another he was also very comfortable talking mm. about his his faith um in ways that seemed very naturalistic um but even and it's notable that they were successful right? clinton yeah. and obama were both uh, both elected and there is some suggestion that part of that was their ability to reach out to to people of faith in a way that say hillary clinton who naturally was not inclined to speak yeah. about her faith in that way um was unable to yeah i think it's a interesting note i mean uh, if you're a conservative christian and you see a democrat who's a southern baptist you probably immediately say uh, no way I, I know what i'm getting with that because that's carter that's clinton al gore yeah yep. um but uh you know it, it, it is interesting and it, it but it also points this point this 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 fact that uh you know so the successful ones very comfortable with their with their faith uh, in terms of the winning elections clinton and then obama um but you know for all this talk about separation of church and state and as you say it's not called that even in the you know in the constitution um you've got to talk religion if you're gonna if you're gonna win an election you do i mean there there has never been an avowedly atheist president of the united states uh despite the fact that actually another part of the constitution explicitly says says there shouldn't be no religious test for office historically opinion polls have suggested that americans trust atheists less than they trust almost any other group (laughs) when you put them in 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 positions of of power which makes it very difficult for those who are non-religious to to get into to that kind of situation i mean thinking about the the current uh, roster of candidates mm-hmm. uh, in the, the current election. The, the closest you have, I think, is uh, someone like Bernie Sanders, who um, is, by his own definition, a, a secular Jew, um, but um, has uh, sort of bristles when he's asked about his, mm-hmm. his faith and sort of says it, it's not something that, that's important. Um, and has been quoted as having saying that um, he is not actively involved in organised religion, mm. but he's probably the the closest that we've had for a very long time mm. um, of somebody seemingly of no faith tradition in a kind of national political yeah. debate. I think that probably gets to issues which I know we're going to cover later in the in the podcast because I think uh, because the question is worth asking and. We'll ask it again uh, in a few minutes. Is that uh, is America changing in a such a way that maybe it isn't as important to at least have some sort of uh, some sort of professed, most likely Christian uh, uh, faith? But uh, maybe this would be a good time, as we're still kind of 
backward looking because we're going to talk talk about the current race and also 2016 a little bit. Um, maybe just show a second clip. I think okay. um, we're we're going to actually take it to the second in the series that Louis Theroux did. It's um, America's most hated family in crisis. It's from uh, 2011. And um, maybe give us a little uh, synopsis about what that one, that film is about in terms of what's the issue. And it certainly plays in line with the, you know, your own research interests. Okay, so one of the things that brought the Westboro Baptist Church to public knowledge was um, its activities of protesting the funerals of service personnel who'd been killed in Iraq and Afghanistan in the early years of the, the 2000s um, as a protest um, against what they see as America's tolerance of homosexuality. They would stand at, at funerals with um, picket signs, which I'm probably not going to, to tell you what they, they said. You can find them on, online. But they were exceptionally hurtful and um, per, both to the, the families um, of those whose funerals were, were taking place and also to the LGBTQ community. Mm. Uh, now, the, the church, it's fun, one of its fundamental principles is that pretty much everything bad that happens in the United States is God's punishment for its right. tolerance of, of homosexuality. So they, when they picketed these funerals, they weren't saying that these particular service personnel were gay themselves, uh, but making a broader political point. Um, so in the run-up to the documentary, um, one of the, the fathers of a serving service member who had been killed in um, America's military interventions um, sued the Westboro Baptist Church for the distress that they had caused him at his son's funeral. The church responded and said, this is freedom of speech. We're talking about political issues. Um, we're talking about political issues from a perspective of faith. This is protected by the First Amendment. And it was a Supreme Court case that went, it was a court case that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the documentary takes place against the background of that. All right, so let's uh, let's watch that clip now. We can't hear you! We can't hear you! One of the biggest developments with the Phelps was a court case that had been brought against them by the father of a young soldier whose funeral the family had picketed in 2006. The Supreme Court heard an emotionally charged case that could redefine the First Amendment right of free speech. There is a civilized way to express an opinion in America, but it does not involve intentionally inflicting emotional distress on others. Albert Snyder had won $13 million from the Phelps. The decision was overturned on appeal and was now before the Supreme Court. The Phelps elders, many of whom are lawyers, had made a high-profile trip to Washington. Reporters asked whether the Phelps family ever considered the Snyder family's feelings. Crying about your feelings for your sin, no shame. You're going straight to hell on your crazy train. That's our answer about feelings. Stop worshipping your feelings and start obeying God. But the national exposure seemed to have spurred a sense of urgency in the church and fed into a concrete timetable for the second coming. I wondered about the younger members, and so I'd arranged to spend time with a couple of Shirley's children. First up, 11-year-old Noah. Can I come in? How are you doing? Do you feel you understand the message a little bit better now? Yes. And do you understand that um, gay people, homosexuals, find the word 
fag offensive? I really don't care. It's a good way to put it. Gay actually means happy. And so it's way better than that. And you can put all those big words homosexual. They're just a bunch of filthy fags. I don't care if they find it offensive. It's wrong. The Bible says it's wrong. So you can just shut up about that. Did you just tell me to shut up? Okay, sorry, sorry. I'm just saying <laughs> you can do Okay, sorry. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases and upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. And now, back to Factual America. Uh, welcome back to Factual America. Uh, we've been discussing, um, well, U.S. politics, religion, uh, with uh, Dr. Emma Long, uh, and we just saw that clip from the uh, the second Louis through film on the uh, Phelps family in the Westboro Baptist Church. I mean, what I found interesting in the first one is that it comes out that uh, many of the senior members of the church are uh, trained lawyers. Yes. Uh, and I guess you have to be. <laughs> yeah, given some of their activities, they absolutely have had to, to be. And I mean, the, the Supreme Court case from, from 2011 uh, was a big moment you know it gave them national prominence so they'd sort of got it from publicity anyway because of their activities but the supreme court effectively said while while not um agreeing clearly with with what they were saying they said these are views these are comments on um public issues they're not standing right outside the churches or the cemetery cemeteries they're abiding by all the laws therefore the first amendment right to free speech protects their right to to do that um a decision that many people did not like uh mm -hmm. it should be she should be said uh including for many people who support <laughs> support freedom of speech um but taking this very long-standing view that the right to freedom of speech doesn't just protect the right for people to say things with which you agree or things that are not hurtful. Um, the majority opinion from the Supreme Court made it very clear that the comments that were being made probably didn't add much to public discourse. There's some interesting asides in the, the opinion, um, but nevertheless came down on the, the side of the, the church saying that they, they had the right to do this. Yeah. And was it, uh, did it break along the decision? Did it, was it a 5-4? Did it break along uh, conservative, more liberal lines? Or? Um, actually, no, it didn't. Um, it didn't divide liberal uh, conservative in ways that you, you might perhaps expect. It was an actually an 8-1 decision. So it was overwhelmingly uh, in favor of the, the right of the church to, to, to do this. And the one dissenter, Samuel Alito, is actually considered to be on the more conservative side. And, and his point was that um, these were these views were so hurtful and so damaging that uh, that overrode uh, many of the, the other concerns. I'm distinctly simplifying what is a complex yeah. legal, <laughs> legal no, opinion, no, no, but, but, but it, it was, there was a, a majority, um, a very clear majority in favor of the church's right to, to do this. That's very interesting. Well, let's bring this forward now because um, I think that was, uh, as we said, I think that was 2011. I think uh, well, let's bring it to 2016, maybe even 18 in terms of the most, last few uh, election cycles in the United States. Um, how did how did what role did religion play in the 2016 race? That's um, 
there are lots of different ways in which you can answer that particular yeah. question. The the one statistic that gets gets thrown around with regards to 2016 and that we are still talking about in, in many ways, particularly thinking forward to, to 2020, uh, is the fact that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, uh, despite the fact that many would argue that Trump's behavior does not exemplify a Christian way of living and that his ability to quote the Bible does not have shades of um, politicians like, for example, Clinton and Obama, who are actually uh, quite comfortable with with that. Now, there are problems with that 81 percent, as many people have have pointed out, simply because definitions of evangelical vary. Um, uh, Some people who consider themselves evangelical don't necessarily belong to churches who think of themselves as evangelical, and some churches that denominations that might think of themselves as evangelical, other people don't. So although the the figure gets used, and I'm repeating it again now, there are some problems, should we say, with that, Mm. that figure. But what it does tell is it's overwhelmingly white evangelicals supported uh, President Trump over other candidates. Um, despite some of his behaviour, which led has led some commentators to ask why they supported President Trump. Well, that's what I want to ask. I mean, uh, he's, his, his own uh, relationship with uh, religion and Christianity is a very interesting one. I think uh, I remember some quote to the effect of... Uh, about talking about it, he said, well, he never, I think he said maybe the Bible was his favorite book or something like that. But he also said he's never asked God for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I don't think he needs, thinks he needs to. Uh, Probably. I don't know. We don't, we can't get inside of his head. Uh, Maybe that's a good thing. Uh, But why did he do so well? Do you have so, a, you know, you yeah, I mean, I think there are uh, lots of, of reasons for, for this. Um, one is, um, I think, that the fact that many conservative Christians have become so locked into the Republican Party since Reagan and to the, the policies that ultimately that is the defining issue who will take the stand that they want on abortion politics for example or gun rights or other kind of culture wars issues to use that term term broadly um and they certainly didn't trust clinton on on that and generally don't trust um democrats but at the the same time there were a lot of interviews with with trump supporters people go asking about exactly this question and people saying well um you know, uh, Protestant faith it relies on, you know, everybody's a sinner. Everybody has to, to repent. People have the opportunity to to learn, to ask for, for forgiveness. And they see Trump sort of in that, that mold, whether he asks for forgiveness or, or not. But they sort of say, take that position, nobody is perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. He's Trump has, has made mistakes. He has the opportunity to learn from them. We should extend some kind of um, understanding with regards to that. Um, so there are lots of you know complicated reasons as to, to why it, politics is, is part of it, the historical politics is part of it, faith is a, another part of, of the story, but it, it's a big, big mix. And is this just another, you know, we've we mentioned it previously, is that, that just the Democrats don't know how to deal with, with the faith issue? I mean, I, I think so... Whoever isn't the Democrat, whether they're a perfect or imperfect candidate for a from a religious standpoint, stands in stark contrast to what the Democrats are or not offering. I think 
there's part of it there. And also, you have to remember, thinking about the idea of separation of church and, and state, uh, the Democrats have historically been the, the party who have been supported by those groups who advocate most firmly for the separation of church and state. Um, Jewish groups, for example, have historically been very pro-separation about keeping a very big distance between re religion and, and government. Um, mainline Protestants um, have also been that, and in some ways, the, the same way that the Republican Party has become the party of faith over other things, um, the Democratic Party have spoken to a constituency that continues to support this idea that there should be a separation between faith and politics. And so, um, you know, it, it's very hard if you've got that image to then suddenly start talking about your faith in a way that doesn't somehow suggest that you are violating that that principle so they, they've got those those two difficulties and I guess there's this there's certainly and it's come up uh, in other podcasts and discussions we have is that there's certainly this increasingly polarization of American society mm -hmm. and I do think uh, I wonder if um, and the Democrats are part of that as well and they've got as you say each side's got their interest groups and uh, you know you could say that Democrats have taken some hard hardline stands, even about members of their own party and candidates. In terms of, uh, I don't want to derail this uh, this podcast with a discussion about abortion, but I think uh, mm -hmm. they're very locked into the uh, the pro choice movement. And yeah. those who people who are pro life, there's there are Democrats who have considered themselves pro life, who now feel like they can't even be part of that yeah. party anymore. So, I think probably that's I would say that's even maybe an issue that hasn't been getting as much discussion in terms of what's maybe been driving some of the some of the uh, certainly maybe even the Christian evangelicals because I think Catholics broke kind of 50-50 as they usually do yeah. with candidates but mm -hmm. uh, certainly with the uh, the fundamentalist Christians or evangelicals that's I think a big big issue driving some of them. And I think this, this idea of polarization is actually really important because if we think back to, to the idea of the culture wars, um, it was sort of first put out there in academic scholarship by a sociologist called James Davison Hunter in, I think his book was 1991. Mm. Um, and his argument was actually not that the culture wars were just about faith, but what he was identifying was this idea of a, a change in American sort of social thinking between divisions between different groups, religious groups. So the decline of divisions between Catholics and Protestants and, and Jews and, and Muslims and, and others in the United States towards a new dynamic, which saw a split between liberal and conservative. Um, and um, although he didn't quite use the liberal conservative mm. terms. And ultimately, that's sort of what we've we've seen as mm. as politics and, and religion has, has come to be more connected. What we've seen is that that polarization has come to, to be along liberal and conservative mm. lines and that actually coalitions between um, conservative Protestants and conservative Catholics um, which we we now take for for granted in the United States as part of the the kind of the rise of the conservative right or the religious right to use the other term um, in the 1940s would have been practically unthinkable. Um, I do some work at the moment on um, the relationship between Protestants and Catholics in the United States in that kind of round the period of World War II and just after, and it, they were bitterly divided. So there is a story here mm. about how. Um, these groups have, have come to work together and, and Hunter's idea of the culture wars in this kind of more liberal conservative split sort of gives us one way to think about that that really mm -hmm. does feed into the way that we see American politics today which is not just 
religiously, but in terms of secular issues too, has mm. kind of moved sl- somewhat more to the the margins. Mm. Um, I think that. Uh, Well, I think it'd be a good time to now let's look at 2020. Let's look at uh, the, the, the Democratic uh, uh, candidates. Uh, and given your, your focus and background, I mean, what are you seeing in terms of, uh, of how religion is, is or is not? We, you mentioned previously about Bernie uh, earlier mm-hmm. in, the, in the discussion. So let me maybe bring that to the fore again and uh, uh, what's different this time or maybe what's, what's the same. I haven't seen much yet in terms of an explicit discussion of religion. Um, but that doesn't, of course, mean it, it's not there, only that it's not the top talking point, um, often that it, it can run under the, the surface. Um, the recent statistics, thinking about this 81% that, that's had so many people talking for, for the last yeah. four years, um, a recent um, poll by the Pew Research Center suggests that... Um, About 77% of um, white evangelicals think that President Trump is doing a good job. So it's not that far removed from the 81% who, who voted for, for him. Um, and that roughly 75% of, of white evangelicals say that they will consider voting for, for Trump again in 2020, which suggests that, that not that much has, has changed, at least on the, the surface. If you look closely, actually, there, there are some quite deep splits between within the evangelical mm. movement there's a, a kind of liberal evangelical wing who's been very critical of, of trump now whether they will come to play a, a bigger role as the the election heats up um i don't know uh we will we'll see um but the other interesting thing i think is that, that looking at some of the democratic frontrunners having said that the democrats have often found it quite difficult mm. to, to talk about the faith Um, actually, of some of the leading candidates, Bernie Sanders being the exception, some of the an- other candidates are actually very outspoken about their faith. In a sense, they, maybe they're, they're learning the lessons of, of Clinton and Obama um, and realizing that actually this is a, a group of people that they need to, to reach out to and that just not talking about religion is not going to, to be able to, to do it. Well, I guess what's interesting, I think if, uh, if you think of uh, some of the ones, that, w- well, what we can call front runners at this stage, mm-hmm. uh, so for those of those listening, we're, re- we're recording this in uh, sort of uh, mid to late February, but uh, we've got Pete Buttigieg. I mean, mm-hmm. I think um, it's interesting, the, the millennial in the race, we've got a bunch of baby boomers and we've got a couple of millennials and no one from my generation running in this, this time, really. But... Uh, Uh, he seems to be the one that's most out there with about his faith, but he's an interesting candidate in that regard. He is interesting, and I think he, he's been very interesting because obviously he's, he's openly gay, he's yeah. married, um, and in a sense, his, uh, nobody, I think, certainly, I don't doubt his, his religious faith. It's clearly important to him, but that it seems to me that part of what he's doing is trying to challenge this idea that you, you if you are gay, you can't be religious right or that the church will not embase people who are, are gay um so there seems to be a, a message there in which he's he's saying i'm i'm gay and i'm religious and my faith is important to me and it shapes my life and those two things aren't polar opposites which in again in the kind of the the culture of the culture wars that has, has been so dominant um is a message that actually probably needs to get out there a little bit more into the mainstream mm. discussion so i i think um 
it, it's partly about the fact that his faith is important to him. It's a natural way in which he speaks, but there's a, a broader message, I think, that's going out there there too. Yeah, but, but what I find interesting about him is that uh, all that said, um, mm-hmm. progressive millennials can't stand him. <laughs> You know, I mean. no. I think he's he's sort of tra- portrayed himself very much as this sort of middle of the road Democrat. Um, and after four years of of Trump and the Republicans, and and even longer than that, if you think about the the way in which Republicans had control of Congress and in the last few years of Obama's presidency and obstructed legislation, I think there's a, a lot of people who want the Democrats to be more active in opposing that. And and he is not really one of them. He seems to be much more of that kind of mainstream, we have to work across the political divide. And I'm not sure how many people want to hear that right now. Well, and I also think, I mean, it's who he is. He's a former McKinsey consultant, yeah. uh, management consultant. He's, uh, uh, you know, he's just, uh, it, it's it's an interesting one because uh, Bernie Sanders is the oldest, well, he may be actually now surpassed by Bloomberg, I think. They're both about the same age, but... Uh, Bernie Sanders, I think they're both 78. Um, Ber- Bernie's polling really well with millennials, mm-hmm. and Buttigieg is doing really well with the older ones. Yes. You know. Um, but I, I, maybe this gets to this point is what is, you know, what's happening in, you know, we've, we're kind of, we've been talking this entire time, it's sort of assuming that the U.S. is almost kind of static and sort of uh, religious views have been staying the ch- same for uh for many uh, decades now, but uh, there's there's been some things happening in the last uh, maybe even as little as the last ten years or so uh, in terms of how people identify with with religion. Uh, do you have any uh, any research or anything you've 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 noticed on that front? Yeah, so a few years ago, the the opinion polls that that look um, at religious beliefs and their their relationship with with politics, and there are a number of them started talking about nuns, as in N-O-N-E-S, yeah. not the, the religious uh, orders. And um, this idea of, of people who do not identify with a particular faith. And I think it, it's important to understand when, when people started, first started talking about the nuns, mm. um, people were assuming we were talking about sort of agnostics and atheists, people of no faith whatsoever. And actually, it's much more complicated than than that. And the nuns also encompass a, a group which often gets classed as nothing in particular. And I think it's, it's important to note that actually a very large percentage of those people argue that faith is important, often that they believe in God, mm. um, but often classify themselves as spiritual, not religious, and don't see themselves as allied with any particular church or denomination or faith. So the nuns are not necessarily people absent of faith, um, but people who do not identify along traditional lines. Um, current figures suggest that that may well be around t- around 25% of uh, American voters, which is a significant proportion when you, you think about it. And given that faith tends to be or has historically been quite a, um, a factor in determining how people vote, the idea that there may be, you know, one in four Americans where perhaps that does not apply Um is, is sort of an interesting one to throw into the, the mix. Now, the, the sense is that for 2016, that didn't necessarily make a huge 
impact on um, on the the outcome. But there there is a group there, and um, interestingly, one of the things that that group consistently report about why they don't identify with a particular faith or, or denomination is that they are put off by the increasing connection between religion and politics. Mm. Um, now, if that is indeed the, the fact, that doesn't necessarily bode well for Republicans who have, as we've already talked about, sort of come to be seen as the party of faith, or at least the party of a particular kind of, of faith um, and connections with, with politics. So this may not, we, we don't know yet how much of an impact it's going to have on 2020, or it, it may have a somewhat of an impact, but will it be enough to move the election one way or the other? But in terms of the medium to long term, because this is a rapidly growing group, isn't it? This 25%, it's, it could be a few years, will be a third, it will be, you know, I, I would imagine. Uh, potentially. I mean, the, the last, the, the first time this really, yeah. really appeared was about 2007, when it accounted for about 16% of the population. So it's jumped, what? by seven percentage points um, in what, nine years between the, yeah. the two big surveys, which is a significant yeah. uh, group of, of the uh, group of the population of the, the electorate. Okay. Uh, I think uh, my, my producer's whispering in my ear saying we're going to, it's hard to believe, but the uh, time's gone by very quickly uh, and that we sort of, we need to kind of wrap okay. up here. But uh, I think... Um, Emma, I just want before we we do that, just uh, maybe you could tell, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, you uh, spent a year in uh, Wisconsin, is that right? I Noah? did go Packers. Yeah, um, I knew that. I thought, you, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> Everyone who spends time in Wisconsin becomes this avid, rabid Packers. Uh, fan. You you can't help it. Yeah. So um, as an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to do a year's study abroad. Um, yeah. I was at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. So um, yes, I, it's sort of my my adopted home state, even though I haven't had the chance to be back there in a while. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you had what were your impressions as a as a student going there, and your impressions of religion in America that your year there? Uh, well, if I tell you pretty much my entire career and the stuff yeah. that I've worked on came out of the studies yeah. of my year yeah. there, um, both in terms of the Supreme court yeah. i got interested in school prayer actually yeah. uh to hop back to something that we mentioned before um so yeah i, I sort of have that to to thank for uh, for the career that i have very good uh and i think um um you know i think that's uh, that's very interesting and I, also because milwaukee is going to be there's I, even an article just a couple of days ago still saying that milwaukee could be the kingmaker if you will oh, in terms of the election it kind of was last time around as well uh so uh you know we might have to if, we, if milwaukee does we'll have to have you Come back, back on. To it. yeah i i think so i just wanted to th close there emma it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast thank you very much really enjoyed it um uh we've been uh, talking about the film Most Hated Family in America, don't avoid it anymore like I did. I think it's worth a watch in the in the two the sub subsequent uh, episodes that Louis Theroux did. Um, where can we, f how, what's the best way of following you in terms of any research or books or anything that you're uh, putting out? Probably easiest to find me through the University of East Anglia okay. website. I may be one of the few people who is not on Twitter. Okay. Um, so well, we've that's got probably the easiest way to go. <laughs> we've got. Uh, we'll have show notes. We'll put a link to you uh, in in the show notes. So um, I just wanted to uh, shout out to Spiritland Studios again. Thank you 
for the wonderful hospitality. Uh, and to please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, uh, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. And do get in touch with us and let us know what you think. Uh, we'd be keen to hear uh, any ideas for future shows, guests, uh, and questions for future guests, indeed. So um, this is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guest, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.